Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Now, of course, we're in the, the age of Zoom. Well, do all those meetings that you're doing actually need to be conducted via video? Because for a lot of people, and this is true for extroverts too, um, the video component of Zoom adds a whole other layer of exhaustion um, for lots of reasons that we could talk about. And is it really necessary? A lot of people listening to this are like, um, like, praise be if I could just turn off the video. (laughs) (laughs) Praise be, exactly, yeah. There's so many things wrong with with video conferencing, but I think the biggest really is the way in which you can't make, you, you have this choice between, you know, staring into the camera in order to make it seem as if you're having eye contact with the person versus are you actually having eye contact with the person who you're looking at? I think that that's especially an, an especially exhausting dilemma for introverts because if you're somebody who is not always so comfortable with every social interaction, one of the best ways to override that discomfort is through tapping into your natural empathy and your natural curiosity for the person who you're speaking with. And when you can't actually look them in the eye without them feeling as if you're not looking them in the eye, that interrupts that whole process. Yeah, the, the am I looking at the camera? Am I looking at the person's face choice? It's, it's an awful choice. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman, doing a quick intro before we hop into the episode. I hope you guys are well. This is one of our first in a while audio-only episodes of Yang Speaks. Now, why are we audio-only? I know many of you are very disappointed not to see our beautiful or funny-looking faces, depending who you're asking. But the reality is, in the news of the week, Andrew Yang has coronavirus. It's very scary, as always. Um to get the virus we're all locked down for. Um, but he's doing well. He's feeling better. Flu, he feels like he has a f- heavy flu. Thank you all for many of you have tweeted and um, commented on Instagram to, to send some love, and we've passed that on to him, and he sees it. And the reality is he's one of the hardest-working people I've ever met. He's an Energizer bunny. He just keeps going and going. So he's like, we're doing the podcast. Let's go. We're doing it. Um, we're just not going to put it on video because I look like crap, which is true. He's kind of been uh, in a, a state of sick quarantine, which is not fun, um, for anyone, particularly him. So thoughts and prayers to Andrew. He's feeling better. He'll be back on his feet very soon. I hope to be back to regular on camera programming next week. So we've got Susan Kane on today. She has written multiple books, but does a ton of research on the power of being an introvert. Um, now for those of you listening who are extroverts like me, I'm, if I do the Myers-Briggs test, I am a hundred percent an extrovert. The cross I bear folks, I'm just, uh, like I get my energy um, from people, and that is 
in many ways awesome um, because there's a lot of things in society that are set up for extroverts, but in other ways it can put people off. And so I learned a lot by helping um, have Susan explain how introversion works and how people can get energy from themselves, which is what introverts are. And I know Andrew's an introvert and he's taught me a lot about this as well. So I think you guys are going to find this one fascinating. She is brilliant and um, talks about a topic that not a lot of people talk about. And I think it's really important for those of you who listen to this and understanding how human beings are wired, how we get our energy. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy a lesson on what introverts are and how to understand them with Susan Kane here on Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I am so excited to welcome to Yang Speaks an intellectual role model of mine I've admired for quite some time who actually had a profound impact on my family. I don't know if she knows that. The author of Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, Susan Kane. Welcome, Susan. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's such an honor to be here with you. And I don't think I knew about the profound impact on your family. So I would love to hear about that at some point. Well, our older son was very introverted. And so my wife picked up your book uh, and it had a big impact on uh, us as a family. Um, it led my wife and I to dig in deeper to our son's nature. It turns out that He's on the autism spectrum, so it was even more than introversion. Um, but I, I think your explanation of introversion as someone who gets overstimulated by certain yeah. types of situations was something yeah. that really hit home for us because our son uh, was overstimulated very easily at a young age. Yeah, and there is a real overlap there also um, for, for kids and adults who are on the autism spectrum um, with that sensitivity to stimulation. That is such a, a big aspect of it that I think people don't, they, it's not only that they don't understand it, I think people aren't aware of the myriad ways that sensitivity to stimulation comes up in day-to-day -day life. Like you've probably now become aware of it, but you know, your average manager, let's say, thinking about scheduling the 17th Zoom call of the day is probably not thinking about the ways in which Zoom can be highly overstimulating for 
half the people who are participating in the call. I have a running joke, Susan, that I say Zoom is powered by human souls. <laughs> <laughs> yes, meaning like the, the souls are, are depleted by the time you're done with the Zoom. Oh, my soul is definitely depleted. Yeah. And so I, I have this image in my mind of like a giant battery <laughs> somewhere that, that's just like going up in power the more of us use Zoom. I shouldn't joke because Zoom is a very valuable tool. But one of the reasons why your book was impactful was that I was a very introverted kid, very bookish and nerdy, uh, like to read science fiction. You know, what's wild is in your book, you even talk about how Asian Americans have a tendency towards introversion. And then that um, ends up challenging their self-esteem when they hit 12 years old, because they end up hitting an environment that then values different qualities, mm -hmm. um, which is something that I experienced. <laughs> so I kind of had that self-esteem challenge uh, at age 12 on. It was really difficult. It, it's wild because at this point, I am theoretically very extroverted in terms of action, uh, but I still feel myself to be an introvert. And that definitely was true on the presidential trail when after a full day of campaigning, I would often feel very, very depleted um, and need just to stare into space for a while. <laughs> I can imagine. And um, I... You know, the first question, of course, that's going through my mind is your choice of profession and your choice to to pursue the presidency. Is that something that you are doing um, despite your true temperament? It's uh, what I think uh, you refer to in the book as like free trait theory, where if yes. you uh, really feel strongly about something, then you can get yourself to do it. I think that was the adaptation I made. Um, well before I ran for president, uh, it, it was actually when I tried to start a business in my 20s. Because like you, I was an unhappy corporate attorney. Um, but, uh, but I lasted only five months at Davis Polk. <laughs> I, I thought to myself at the time that I had gotten the best job I could get based upon schooling. Um, you know, like uh, Davis Polk is a great firm. And then I said, well, if I'm going to have the kind of career I want for myself, I'm going to have to... Uh, develop these other qualities. Those qualities were around entrepreneurship and uh, salesmanship to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so during that time, I said, okay, I guess I'm going to have to get better at these things if I'm going to be able to have the kind of uh, career I want for myself or impact I want to have. It's really interesting to me, though, because I um, think, you know, as somebody who who sees your political career more from afar, that um, one of the strength that you have is that you come across as a regular person who's in politics as opposed to as a career politician or as somebody who's been you know, grooming to be a politician all his life. And, um, and so I, I think in a way you're doing what many introverts learn to do, which is to make of their natural tendency a strength, but to, to make it in their own image instead of trying to be some other type of person. Well, thank you. That's, that's very high praise. I still wince a little bit if someone calls me a politician, honestly, um, though it's factually accurate. I mean, like I, like I don't take it as like a, you know, an insult or anything. So I have to say, Susan, it is almost impossible for a book 
to genuinely set off a revolution of some kind. But I think that your book actually did it. (laughs) 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 And And I laugh, but you struck such a chord. And then there were so many people that were kind of suffering in silence mm-hmm. <laughs> before your book came along. And then it, it, it feels like you kind of unlocked or unleashed all of this uh, suffering and potential energy around trying to build workplaces and a society that are more mindful uh, of folks who become overstimulated by various uh, social situations. Um, it's it's really been incredible. Uh, how did you end up plugging into this work initially? And then tell us about really the last number of years, because this book came out in uh, 2012. And since then, you've had two TED Talks, uh, two sequels to the book, uh, a, a genuine organization that is actually making a huge difference in people's lives. Um, so this is a very long-winded way of, of asking. Uh, first, did you ever imagine that it was going to reach this level when you first started writing this book? Oh my gosh, not at all. Um, so, you know, my path was like you. I was a corporate lawyer at a very similar firm. I was at Cleary Gottlieb. And, um, but I, I had always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. And, um, and when I stopped practicing... I wrote all kinds of things for a few years, never tried to publish anything, but I was writing plays and essays and poetry and memoir, all kinds of stuff. Um, and, and then I started working on this project about introverts. And I thought of it as this quirky project that I was doing on the side. Um, for some reason, this was the project that I decided I was gonna actually try to get published, um, you know, as opposed to all the other stuff I'd been writing. Um, but even though I was, I started working on a book proposal and, you know, went into the whole publishing thing. Um, yeah, I thought of it as my quirky, idiosyncratic take on the world. Um, I thought I'd be happy if the book got published and, you know, and a few people bought it, but I had no idea of the nerve it was going to tap when I first started working on it, you know, for the for the reason that I think you just touched on, which is most people have been experiencing what it's like to be an introvert in an extroverted culture in silence. No one ever talks about it. No one ever did talk about it. Um, So I didn't know (laughs) that so many people felt that way. And I also didn't know so many people um, who felt that way would be so happy to come forward and start chatting about it <laughs> as they did. Um, but I got my first inkling when uh, my agent and I uh, first pitched the book proposal uh, to the publishing houses and you know it set off this crazy auction and I um, started meeting with all the different houses and one by having all these meetings and one by one, everybody started identifying themselves as introverts. Um, so well, I'm sure the publishing yeah. world is very introvert heavy. It is. It is. But th- so this is the thing that kept happening. So you could. So so that's what I said to myself. You know, that was when I. It was all just beginning, and I thought, okay, well, that's just the publishing world. That's a really introverted space, right? Because it's book people. Um, but then, some years later, after I'd written it, the book came out, and the first thing I did practically was give a TED talk about it. Um, and you know, you know, TED is this environment of all these sort of mover shaker type people 
um, lots of CEOs and people uh, kind of striding across the world in one way or another. Um, but in that environment too, I, I happened to be one of the first speakers and I came off the stage and was immediately surrounded by all these other people, all these people who were telling me that they too were secret introverts and they had never talked about it before or they had never even realized it themselves. Um, but that's really who they were. And, uh, and this is what started to happen no matter what environment, uh, I found myself in, you know, like half the people were, were talking about how intensely uh, this described their story. Something like a quarter to a half of all people are introverts, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. There's different studies. And so one study found that it was about a third um, of Americans and another study, 50%. So, you know, I, I think we're safe to estimate that it's one out of every two or three people that you know, you know, so that's a lot of people in your family, um, in your workplace, in your campaign, <laughs> um, anywhere you go. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you pitch your book. Uh, there's a frenzy around it. You're like, huh, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It's a kind of uh, amusement. You do a TED Talk and you realize that a lot of the techies were introverted nerds too, which does not shock me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Chris Anderson knew from the beginning. Um, he, he had a sense that the audience would, would uh, resonate. So then the book takes off. And then uh, what is that time like? Yeah, so then after that, it just became um, a kind of non-stop whirlwind from one world to another. Um, I mean, okay, so first of all, it was like hundreds or thousands of letters and conversations and so on with just one human after another um, talking about how 
this concept was giving them a sense of permission finally to be who they are, who they actually are. Um, and that word permission is the word that people use over and over again. Um, like, I don't think we realize the, the degree to which it just becomes habit for introverts to not feel permission to do what they want to do. Um, you know, and it's as, some, as, as simple as like, okay, how are you going to spend your free Saturday afternoon? Um, you know, you might really want to just be hanging out by yourself. And there's just this feeling that gets bred into us from a very early age that there's something wrong with that choice. Um, so, so the, the first answer to your question is, is that it was just this incredibly moving and humbling series of conversations with one, one person after another, you know, talking about their life experiences. Um, and then the other aspect of it has been watching the ways in which these ideas can really, um, improve institutions, you know, whether you're talking about schools or sports teams, or um, or companies, and I've been so gratified to see how open and willing people are to embrace these these kinds of ideas. You know, because the message is kind of like, well, you know, as an institution, this this if I'm speaking to a school or if I'm speaking to a company, the message is, well, as an institution, you haven't been getting it right thus far, and and you can imagine that being. A message that people would resist, but that hasn't happened. I've found instead that people are really receptive, and you know they get it. We're, we're, we're talking about half of our population. Why would we not want to get it right? Why would why would we not want to make a few tweaks that would harness the energies and the talents of half our population? Why would we not do that? I've seen this adopted now uh, in every kind of institution that you can imagine, um, and it's just incredibly exciting. Let's say that someone listening to this right now is a manager uh, mm-hmm. and they're thinking, oh, you mean like maybe there's something I can do that will actually help some of my people feel more comfortable or be in better position to produce? Like what kind of tweaks are we talking about in a typical organization? How do they do things customarily and then how might they tweak it? Well, there's really a lot, you know, the number one thing would be getting this to just be a subject that people talk about readily and comfortably and where you can kind of just joke around with each other about what everyone's temperament is. Um, Like I'm just thinking of a a conversation that I had with um, Professor Bob Sutton, um, business school professor, and and he was talking about how so many... um, so many academics are introverts and that there's a way in which many academic institutions make it comfortable for their professors to be that way. And I asked him, well, well what do they do to make it comfortable? And, and he said, you know, it, it's, it's a kind of intangible thing. It's just a kind of joking around of like, yeah, of course, um, you're going to want, you, you just taught a class, of course, you're going to want to go off and take a break now. Um, it, it's just, it's an affectionate, comfortable, easy joking around about these differences. So, so the, the first thing I'm talking about is a just a sort of shift of consciousness. But in terms of specifics, there's a lot. Um, one thing would be to be become more mindful of how many meetings you are having and how many of them are actually necessary. Um, and then when you do need to meet um, as a staff, as a team, how how are those meetings conducted, and and how much exhausting self-presentation is 
involved as opposed to just the the pure exchange of ideas or the pure enjoyment of each other's company. Um, so, you know, now, of course, we're in the, the age of Zoom. Well, do all those meetings that you're doing actually need to be conducted via video? Because for a lot of people, and this is true for extroverts too, um, the video component of Zoom adds a whole other layer of exhaustion um, for lots of reasons that we could talk about. And is it really necessary? A lot of people listening to this are like, um, like, praise be if I could just turn off the video. (laughs) (laughs) Praise be exactly. Yeah. There's so many things wrong with, um, with video conferencing, but I think the biggest really is the way in which you can't make, you, you have this choice between, you know, staring into the camera in order to make it seem as if you're having eye contact with the person versus are you actually having eye contact with the person who you're looking at? I think that that's especially an, an especially exhausting dilemma for introverts because if you're somebody who is not always so comfortable with every social interaction, one of the best ways to override that discomfort is through tapping into your natural empathy and your natural curiosity for the person who you're speaking with. And when you can't actually look them in the eye without them feeling as if you're not looking them in the eye, that interrupts that whole process. Yeah, the, the am I looking at the camera? Am I looking at the person's face choice? <sighs> it's, it's an awful choice. It's an awful choice. It's a really, it's a soul disrupting choice. It's not just a technical choice. But then there's other things that we can do too. Uh, So things like um, opening up a meeting with a kind of round robin where everybody is given their appointed time to speak as opposed to having to jockey for position is very helpful for anybody who is either biologically introverted or more introverted for reasons of gender conditioning or cultural uh, aspects or whatever the reason. There, there's a lot of different reasons that that some people are going to be a lot more hesitant to feel that they're interrupting someone else um, or to kind of jockey for airspace. So the more that airspace can be granted without you having to go through that process, the more help, the more you might hear from everyone. At one of my organizations, we had a rubric called substance to word ratio. (laughs) Does the person actually deliver like high substance to word? Um, Because if someone's just talking a lot, but like not that, not that um, substantively, then, you know, the ratio was low. Um, And and, and so this was something that we used as like a signal to people um, so that it, it wasn't just that, like to reward volume, um, but it was trying to point out thoughtfulness. I love that. Was that your idea? That was my idea. The substance to word ratio. It was one of like the the rubrics that was used. And then after people heard that that was a rubric, (laughs) behavior changes completely (laughs) because all of a sudden, like the people that like to do a lot of talking, all of a sudden are like, wait a minute, maybe I should like uh, rein it in a little bit. That is so interesting. So it actually worked. Like it actually changed behaviors. Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, yeah, feel, yeah. feel free to adopt. Anyone I love it. I, I mean, adopt the substance to word ratio.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. One of the things that you said in your book is that business schools tend to be very, very extroverted. Um, and, and I think there's something around business culture that way. Academia, introverted. I'm going to say law, pretty introverted. But business, the opposite. Absolutely. Though I will say one really nice development that I heard about. A a friend of mine who um, teaches at business school told me that when she used to teach her leadership course, she would always start it by having people do a personality test. And and it used to be that she apparently had a class of 100% extroverts. Um, But she said that that's changed over the years. And now half of the students identify as introverts. So I think what was happening before is that people felt like they had to answer the test questions in a way that would make them seem extroverted, um, but now they don't feel that pressure to quite the same extent. So I think we are seeing some changes in the culture, even though I, in general, I agree with you. um, Business school culture is probably the most extreme. I I actually, you know, you know, from reading the book, I I kind of plopped down at Harvard Business School for a while. (laughs) I was researching the book. I just found it the most fascinating environment. Um, And I went there, I I went to do book research there because a friend of mine had graduated and said it was the spiritual capital of extroversion. I always remember one guy who I interviewed there who, um, who said there's this feeling of like, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter how inconsequential the thing was, you went to the supermarket, you have to figure out a way to make it um, an enticing story about that day that you went to the supermarket. And he was a substance versus words guy. And he felt like he had to just like keep on figuring out ways to raise his hands in class, even when he didn't really have anything like value add to say. That sounds like a difficult environment for someone like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I I would love to see that kind of thing shift. Um, I mean, I'm always intrigued. You're probably familiar with... uh, the, the, the technique out of Amazon, um, where apparently uh, they begin meetings really the week before the meeting starts, where the person who's organizing it has to write a whole lengthy memo um, detailing everything that they're going to talk about. And this all happens way before the meeting. Then everybody gets to the meeting and they sit down. And the first thing they do is for half an hour, they sit there together reading silently this memo. Um, before they talk about anything. Um, And this is apparently a a technique that was pioneered by Jeff Bezos to get everybody actually talking about something meaningful as opposed to just, you know, what usually happens where people are just sort of going on the fly and not really knowing what they're saying. So so Susan, um, you're a parent, um, you you have two or three kids? I have two kids, yeah. How do you think social media plays into uh, introversion for kids in particular? And I ask this because I've got one boy who's very um, introverted. 
And, and I have a sense that social media is like the ultimate overstimulation. I don't know if you've seen anything um, that actually shores up um, my impression. Yeah, I think it goes both ways because social media is, it, on the one hand, it's a way of kids being able to communicate without having to be out there in the social scrum in the same way, you know, putting aside COVID restrictions and stuff. Um, uh, but on the other hand, social media is a kind of bombardment of constant stimuli all happening at once um, with a whole lot of social judgment and social evaluation uh, layered in on top of the stimuli. So in that way, it can be a pretty uh, demanding social environment. At that age, there's so much the feeling of like the, you know, the main currency is how many, how popular are you? How many likes do you have? How many followers do you have? Um, how successful are you? And, and now all of a sudden that's, that's all tangibly evaluated for everybody to see. That's a very difficult thing. I think my lucky star social media, media didn't exist when I was a kid <laughs> because is when I was like a bookish kid hiding in my room, um, you know, I was alone. Um, it's not like if I took out my phone, all of a sudden my classmates were there with me. Right. Um, right. I think it's very, very difficult for a kid to really escape that because when you're young, what other people think about you seems like the entire world. Exactly. Um, and then if you can just access that on a device, um, uh, it strikes me as uh, quite overpowering. When in, in my life during that time, I would literally just be reading some escapist science fiction novel. And that was like a much more pleasant way to spend my time than seeing what my classmates were doing or worse yet, what they thought about me. <laughs> exactly. And I, I also think that the, um, the kind of social connection that it encourages is so much more performative. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about my adolescent years and I, you know, I would come home and I, I had, um, I had my best friends who I would talk to every night on the phone and it would be like one long one-on-one -on -one phone call after another where we would have these real conversations with each other. The way of interacting was based on a lot of trust and a lot of intimacy and connection. It had nothing to do with performance in the way that everything in social media is. And I really worry about that and what we're sacrificing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I have a question for you, just with that incredibly vivid image that you just painted of yourself in your bedroom at that age, reading your science fiction. So what was the transition from that to a life in politics? And I know it was by way of five months at a law firm, but like it, if, if, if we went back and told your 13-year-old self that you would be doing later what you're doing now, would he be completely shocked or were the seeds of it there back then? I think he would be shocked. You know, what, what, what's funny is the seeds of it, I think, were in those science fiction novels. 
Um, I, I said years later in a book that's much le less successful than yours by my, my first book. <laughs> um, but it, it was that I said when I was a kid, I dreamed about going in the woods and slaying a dragon, mm. um, not being the scribe. Uh, and, and, mm. and that was a dig at my time as a lawyer because I thought I was the scribe. Yeah. And I was like, so I was like, this isn't what I was like, you know, put on this earth to do or more my parents immigrated to this country uh, for me to do. Um, so, it, so I wanted to do something I was proud of. Um, maybe I really internalized the morality of these like fantasy or science fiction novels, but they tended to have like, you know, someone um, overcoming some degree of like challenge or adversity for some greater purpose. Uh, and, and so I, I thought, well, I should try and do that too. Uh, and that started out with me trying to start a business and failing uh, and then working at a series of other startups and then eventually having some degree of success. And then the real purpose-driven juncture was when I started this nonprofit, uh, Venture for America, in 2011. And that required all sorts of new behaviors. Um, and a lot of it, Susan, is that, like, I, I see what my organization needs and then I try and adapt to fulfill um, that, that role. Mm -hmm. And so this nascent nonprofit that I started required me to become this spokesperson ambassador type. Um, and, and so I started taking that on. But it, it was an evolution over time because starting from when I left the law, like I had different degrees of customer facing responsibilities. Another thing that did happen to me when I was young was that I was on the U.S. national public speaking and debate team in mm -hmm. high school. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I ended up competing the world championships in London. Um, so, so there was like a period when I was made to think that I was an above average communicator. And, and that time was still based on my nerdiness in my mind. <laughs> like, you know, it was that I was like, you know, coming up with good arguments and ideas. But at, at some point, I started to feel like I could do these things if I needed to. Did you have um, shyness about being on stage when you were in high school entering those competitions? Or was it like, if you were in the realm of ideas, then, then you were okay? When I was younger, I was miserably uh, shy of being in the spotlight. Um, I remember crying when I was asked to present in front of the class, um, so much so that eventually the teacher just gave up. <laughs> wow, how old were you when that happened? Uh, maybe third or fourth grade, something along mm -hmm. those lines. Mm -hmm. So what made you do public speaking and debate team in high school? Like, was that a slaying of a dragon in and of itself? Or was it like, you know, this is ideas, so it's okay? One of the things that happened to me, Susan, is that like, I, I found myself wanting to have different kinds of experiences. Like, I didn't want to cut myself off from various experiences. Yeah. But this is actually kind of true of my approach today, is that like, I'm still just trying to get stuff done. Like, I, I kind of wanted to have the experience and put myself forward kind of independent of, like, feeling like I was going to be lauded for it or made fun of for it. Seems like what you did was set ego aside. You were more focused on the thing in and of itself. 
That's what it sounds like. I still wouldn't say that I sought it out or thrived on it. Um, like I, I think that I, I went for very, very long periods of time without that kind of um, experience and was totally fine. <laughs> right, right. And if there were a way now to be in public service without having to do all the really out there front facing things that one has to do, um, would you be perfectly happy? My dream, Susan, is that I could just like write things <laughs> and put them out into the world. And then people would be like, oh, that's a great idea. We should do that. <laughs> <laughs> I totally understand. I can't even tell you how much. It's amazing that you, um, despite that being your ideal, the, the path that you've taken is really interesting. And, well, uh, I, I just really want to get the thing done. Um, yeah. and, and, and like, I don't, um, and this is the, the, the tough part about what we're talking about, Susan, is like, I, I think that often people need a person um, to step out there and make a case. Um, certainly that was the case for universal basic income um, in, in the presidential and mm -hmm. like, uh, like someone actually even asked me this and I almost choked um, where they were like, hey, why run for president? Why not just, you know, write a book <laughs> about it? And then I was like, well, one, I did write the book. <laughs> <laughs> and two, like, do you think anyone would pay attention to like, you know, a relatively anonymous entrepreneur's book saying, hey, we should, you know what I mean? Like, like that, that. Like not every book is like your book where it actually works. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I'm so taken by that story because I think that you, you're an extreme example of what so many introverts experience. Um, like introverts who are out there living fulfilling and successful lives. Like they may not do it to the degree that you're talking about. I, I think you're a pretty extreme example. Um, but there and, are... and I, I certainly don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. I mean, I, 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 this is this is one of the things um, as somebody who is a kind of introvert advocate. This is one of the um, the tricky tightropes that I think we all need to walk between um, really honoring what our temperament is and building a life that's as consonant with that temperament as we can. Because why wouldn't you? Um, and then on the other hand. Um, needing as Brian, you talked about free trade theory, which is in my book. And it's this theory that is advanced by this amazing guy named Brian Little, a personality psychologist, um, who talks about how we all in this life should be figuring out what, what our core personal projects are. And those are the, the people and the causes and uh, the work that we're really dedicated to. And what he says is, in the, for, for the sake of those core personal projects and those people who you love and the things that matter, for the sake of those things, you can and should be willing to step out of character um, as long as you do it from a place that honors who you are and as long as you grant yourself what he calls restorative niches where you get to kind of come back and be who you are and be in your equilibrium and take the day off and you know go take a walk by the lake or, or whatever it is. And, um, and, and so I think a lot of getting life right is walking that balance between just being who you are and doing the stepping out of character. Um, but, but also to know that there's like, there's such a huge difference, um, between stepping out of character for the sake of, of 
being the proponent of universal basic income, um, if that's what you believe, um, versus doing it for something that you don't really care about, which I think is the, the dilemma that many people find themselves stuck in. Well, I think that's one benefit of introversion is that if you settle on a belief, um, you can settle on it very, very strongly. Yes. <laughs> you know, like you'd you have like real conviction. I agree with that. I agree. Um, and I also think like the, the converse is true that, that for introverts, they're less likely to get swept up into something just purely for the social benefits of it. So they're more likely to kind of do the extra work of of crafting a life that really makes sense for them substantively. On the public speaking front, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening who who wonder about that, you know, because so many people have a fear of public speaking. Um, and I can tell you, like, I, I used to be completely terrified of public speaking. Um, and now I have this life, at least pre-COVID, where I'm out giving talks all the time to companies and schools. And like, if you had told me, years ago that, that that would be my life. I would have found it ridiculous and impossible. But the evolution that I really went through was kind of what you were describing of, um, of learning, when I'm speaking, learning to shift my focus from the, from the ego of like, how am I coming across? How are they judging me? You know, leaving that behind and instead focusing on Okay, what is the idea that I really want to communicate here? And, and who is the person in the audience whose life might be different by virtue of having heard this? Um, and I always tell myself, if I ever get into that feeling again of, of, you know, of intense jitters before giving a talk, I always tell myself, well, you know, if there's one person whose life or whose child's life will be better as a result of hearing this, then it's worth it. And you're speaking to that person. Well, you've made an enormous difference in a lot of people's lives, Susan. You know, my family is just one example. If someone wants to find out more about your work, uh, the book is Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. At this point, you have another book for families. Yeah, so there's a website at quietrev.com um, where you can find, and that's for Quiet Revolution, so quietrev.com. Um, and on the website, you can find resources for companies and for schools and, and so on. And that website is just out there. Um, everything on it is free, uh, whatever resources you might want. And, um, and then I also work personally with companies and with schools. And in terms of connecting with me online, which is something I really love, love, love to do with people, um, I'm pretty active on social media, on LinkedIn in particular. Um, on Facebook, you can look for me under author Susan Kane. And I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Susan Kane, the patron saint of introverts. <laughs> you, 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 you made the world friendlier for many of us um, and just made a lot of people more mindful about uh, who they are. Uh, it's incredibly empowering. A lot of folks owe you a great debt. Um, and thank you for this conversation. This conversation was a restorative niche for me. <laughs> It has been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I didn't know that whole background story. I, I hope it's going to be inspiring um, for people to hear about. I know it is to me. 